And uh, in this time of, of Christmas and all the excitement and the food and the fun and the friends and family, we can get really busy and we want to be grounded in the truth of this season, right? The celebration of the coming of the gospel. Now, Advent means the coming of, and the gospel is the good news that Jesus came into this world in human flesh, that he lived a life, died for our sins, took our sins upon himself, and rose again, defeating death for our salvation. That's really good news. That is the key element of this season. And last week, we looked at how we can deal with doubts in the midst of this. And when we think about kind of a, our relationship with Jesus, this is, can lead to some doubts about who he really is and our relationship with him. And uh, maybe we lose, lose a, kind of a, or get a confused image of who he is. Maybe he's not working the way we thought he would. Maybe he's not working as fast as we want him to. And so it can kind of affect our relationship with him. And that this is because we tend to put Jesus into a box of, of who we expect or who we see him to be. And this can lead to doubts when he doesn't fit quite the way we thought he would. And, uh, but the, the good news is that uh, this is not something new. We see this uh, in all th- even with Jesus' followers. We looked at John the Baptist as an example who went from a place of knowing the truth to doubting. And that God is gracious with us in these things. And the, when we have doubts, it's not sin to have doubts. It's not a problem to have doubts. It's what we do with them when we have them. We can't let them sit in our minds and fester and grow. We want to immediately take them to Christ, take them to Jesus, as we saw with the example of John the Baptist, who went to Jesus and said, are you the one? And we're going to be today kind of building a little bit on this, uh, but going in a very different direction. We're going to be looking at the incarnation of Jesus Uh, with a specific emphasis on his humanity. But before we dive in any deeper, let's take some time and pray. Give this time to God. Father, we thank you that we can be here together today, that we can come as brothers and sisters, as believers, as followers of you, and that we can learn and grow as we look at you, as we learn about you, especially in this this season of Christmas. Father, I pray that you would give me wisdom to hear your voice and to speak only your truth and that all of us would have our hearts opened to receive the word you'd have, that you'd want to speak into our lives today. As I believe there is no one here, Lord, that you want to leave not having had some impact, some connection with you today. So I pray that for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's the second advent. So before we go any further, we're starting a new tradition where I have like the lighting of the candles. Last week I got an applause, so I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah, thank you. Wait, wait. There it is. All right. Two. So, yes, it's the second advent. And I love this. I love the, the traditions of Christmas, of this season, and uh, I'm especially excited kind of in this first Christmas with my son, and I get to kind of start to think about passing on and instilling traditions uh, with him. And he's back there in the back, hopefully keeping quiet today. We'll see how he goes. And um, 
I'm so excited about this, the traditions and, and being able to pass this on to the next generation. And uh, if you, it kind of got me thinking about uh, my son and how much I love him and how awesome he is and how beautiful he is and also how much work he can be at times, uh, especially when he decides that he doesn't feel like sleeping through the night or at all, or all of the needs that a baby has. It's been quite a learning experience to go into parenthood and seeing just the tremendous need a baby has. And in this season of Christmas, I'm not complaining. I I love my son and I love the experience. I love learning and uh, as I go, <laughs> and but it, it's got me thinking with uh, and the idea of Christmas about the baby Jesus and how just mind-boggling that is to me. Especially when I look at my son and I think Jesus came like this. This thing he can't even roll over on his own. He can't do anything on his own. We have to clean up after him. Jesus came like this, like a baby. And it's amazing to think about that God sent the Savior of the world into the world as a helpless baby. That it began here at, at infancy. And there's, there's some paradoxical kind of things that come with this when we think about Jesus. Because we tend to relate to Jesus as Lord, as Savior. And here we have a woman, Mary, who gave birth to a baby who was also God, the creator of the woman that gave birth to him. So it becomes a bit of a paradoxical thing when we first look at it. But this is the incarnation of God the Son. Even as paradoxical as it seems and hard to twist our minds around, this is what we're going to be focusing on today. We'll try to unpack some of the incarnation and emphasis on some because uh, we, don't, we only have like two hours before... I have to stop preaching. And it's a huge topic. There is tons of depth and tons of grounds that we would maybe need to lay. Uh, So we're going to have a focus on why Jesus' humanity, why his humanity, that he was born a baby, that he lived, he grew, he uh, and eventually died and rose again, why this is an amazing and important aspect of the incarnation, his humanity. And one that we, I think today, it's some, somehow pushed to the side or often not understood or forgotten. But before we do, there are a few things that are believed in the evangelical, the Christian church community, I think that need to be kind of laid down so that uh, we don't border on any kind of heresy when we're talking about the humanity of Jesus. So we want to lay down some truths. Uh, this is... Uh, when I say things that you know, we believe or the church believes, this is something that has been important. The incarnation has been important to the church from the very beginning. Uh, from the time that Jesus rose, which we'll look at in a minute, uh, there already started to be some kind of controversy and confusion that spread around. And so in 451 AD, a creed was written uh, called the Chalcedonian. Is it Chalcedonian? Yeah, okay. I've only read it. I've never actually said it out loud. The Chalcedonian Creed. And we're not going to go through this whole creed. You can find it online. I highly recommend reading through it if you are interested in such things. And, but there are a few kind of five points that I want to go through just really quickly 
to lay down as a foundation before we go any deeper into this topic. So one thing that the creed says is that Christ is to be acknowledged in two natures, concurring in one person and one uh, subsistence, man, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now from that, there are five things that we can grab as concrete truths that are believed in the church as a whole, even if we don't fully understand it. It's not talked about on a regular basis, but this is important for us to lay down before we go any further. So number one, Jesus has two natures. That means he is God and he is man. Number two, each nature is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man. That means it's not some sort of mix. He's not a a hybrid of, of God and man. He's fully God and fully man. He has two natures. Each nature remains distinct. So they are two distinct natures. And Christ is only one person. He never refers to himself as we, as some sort of duality. It's not multi, doesn't have multiple personalities. He is, has dual natures, but he's still Christ. He's still one. And number five, things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. What that means is that no matter what nature he's acting from, in whatever action, and we see both in Scripture, his divine nature and his humanity, his human nature. Uh, whatever action he's, whatever he's acting from, whatever nature he's acting from, the action is one made by the person of Jesus. So either one, it's still Jesus that did it. And I know this is confusing when we first, if you've not really looked into this at all and have, this is all new information to you, and I apologize we can't go in as deep as I would love to, um, but you're welcome to come up and talk with me, or Sam, I know, is also excited about talking, talking about this topic, I'm sure, and uh, we'd love to go in deeper with you. Today, I just want to lay this as a foundation, and we're going to go through this as best we can uh, in our time allotted. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. And when we look at this, there's two camps of kind of confusion that branch off, and uh, or struggles, I would say, that branch off from these truths, from this truth. The first would be accepting him as divine. I think most people, if you walked around on the street, if you walked around on the campus, they're not going, if you ask them about Jesus, they're not going to struggle with his humanity. Historically, there's a lot of evidence that supports that he existed. They'll, they'll, they'll buy that he was a guy, that he lived, that he died. That's not hard to believe either. They'll believe that he was around, that maybe he had, some, that he had people following him, that he maybe had some interesting things to say, had kind of an occult going around with him. But he's just a guy, just like you and I. And the other side are those of us who call him Lord, who say that this that Jesus is my Savior. And I think most of us will either fit into that uh, or at least are interested in the idea of, of maybe thinking of him as Lord or interested in the ideas of the Bible if, you've, if you're here in a church today. And 
this can lead to another struggle of seeing him as fully human. Not just having human aspects, not just that he had a body, but fully human. And uh, if not a struggle, then it can maybe just be something that's not fully understood, that we don't fully grasp or think about. But this issue of the incarnation has gone back and forth of which is the more likely to believe uh, throughout history. I think uh, in Jesus' ministry, as he was you know, walking the earth, doing his ministry, nobody struggled with his humanity. They saw him, they touched him, they could see him, and he was right in front of them. There was no struggle about whether or not this was a human, that he had a humanity. It was his divinity that they struggled with, and this is what we looked at last week. The problem, the struggle, was his divinity. Uh, John the Baptist did not struggle whether Jesus was human, was fully human or not. He had touched him and, and baptized him. It was, the question became, is he truly divine? Is he truly the one that was come to save uh, the people? But not, longer, not long after Jesus' resurrection, it kind of, we see a shift. And there began to be a struggle of accepting Jesus as fully human. There, I'm, there was a lot of different uh, uh, ideas of going around about what exactly he was or what exactly that meant, but fully human seemed to be a struggle. And John, uh, in 1 John 4, 2, uh, we see him kind of, as he's, as he's writing, he's kind of addressing this issue. Uh, this, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So he's making a distinction. Not just come, but come in the flesh. Because at that time, there was already... uh, At that time, you know, believing in a God was was normal. It was weird not to believe in a God, especially in the Roman world. And they believed in many, many gods. And so the idea of him being a God was not that hard to accept. The idea of him, a God, wanting to become a baby, to become human, was hard to grasp. And so he's saying, this is, we, need to, we need to put this out right away. This is a false doctrine. This is not true. He came in the flesh. And this is an important aspect. And he goes on to say that those who kind of, that don't acknowledge that are, is this from the spirit of the Antichrist. But we're not going to get into that. The point is, is that it was already becoming a confusion. And it's not hard to grasp this confusion that God, again, that God would come as a savior, as a baby. But it's important. And that's going to be our focus for the rest of our time, that Jesus is, was and is still today fully human. And that this is important for us to grab. To grasp, And it may seem like, you know, who cares? What does it really matter? How does this really affect my life? How, if I see him as Lord, isn't that more important? Isn't that all that really matters? If I call him, if I pray and I call him Lord Jesus and my Savior, and isn't that all that really matters? Well, if that's you, I would first hope that this is an enlightening uh, message for you today. And second, that uh, Jesus 
the fact that Jesus is fully human is vital to our complete salvation, our complete redemption, which is what we're going to be looking at as well today, the end of our message. And knowing this truth helps us to understand our Savior better, to understand Him, to know Him. And how great is it to know Jesus better, to know Him more intimately. So, let's dive in, because we've got a lot to go through yet. How human was Jesus really? It's not hard to grasp that he might have had a body, but it wasn't just a body. He also had a human mind, human heart, meaning his emotions, and a human will. All these distinct from his divine mind and heart and will. And this is important in our understanding the way that Jesus uh, can see us and empathize with us in where we are. So, first we'll look at Jesus was fully human in his body. Seems like a good place to begin. So we know he was born in Luke 2.7. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. He was born. Jesus has a birth date. We don't know what it is. I want to be clear that I'm not saying it's the 25th, but he has a birth date. Definitely has a date in time and space that he was born. He came into this world just like you and I did. Born, from, came from a woman. He had a mom and dad that needed to take care of him. He relied on them for everything in the beginning. Exactly. Thanks, Josiah. We have all at least seen a baby and know that they are in a state of helplessness and and need. And this is how our Savior came into the world, how our King came. And in that, He truly relates to us right from the beginning, right from our very beginning. We see Him connecting with us because I'm 100% sure that everyone in this room also has a birth date and also was born. And in that, we connect with him. Jesus also grew physically in Luke 2.40. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. So he wasn't Superman. He wasn't born with all of his powers right from the beginning. With all of his might, he grew in his human flesh, in his humanity. Again, a distinct nature of Christ, distinct from his divine nature. His divine nature is mighty and all-powerful, but his human nature is how he chose to come into this world. So he also probably had his awkward phases of, you know, like when your arms and legs grow like much faster than the rest of you. Uh, Maybe that was just me. And you like trip over everything. He's been there. He's been through the pains of growth. Jesus felt tired and weak in his flesh. In John 4, 6, so Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the wall. 
it was about noon. <laughs> I just had this last night as I was finishing this message. I was exhausted as it rounded past 12. Jesus has felt fatigue. Maybe you've been, had those moments of studying into the wee hours of the, of the, of the morning or maybe you're into sports. You felt tired. You felt fatigue. There's a point where these bodies are limited. They reach a point where they, we can push them harder, but they, they hit a, a point where we get tired. We need a break. We have to rest. We can't run forever. And Jesus, in his human flesh, felt this. He experienced this. I think this is important for us to kind of, I know it seems like, is this trivial? Does this really matter? Man, it does matter. This is our Savior. This is our Lord who really wanted to know us and really wanted to experience life as we did and ultimately so that he could redeem every aspect of our lives. He experienced these things. He's felt the limitations of a human body. And also in Luke uh, 23, 26, as Jesus is carrying the cross, he becomes too weak to lift it. And they have to bring in Simon who comes and carries it. He's felt the limitations, the physical weaknesses of the flesh. Jesus got thirsty in John 19, 28, also from the cross. He said, I'm thirsty. So he's felt the parchness of thirst in his body. He's, he knew hunger in Matthew 4, 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I'm hungry after like a few hours of missing a meal. He was hungry. He's felt hunger. And after that, the angels had to come and, and, and support him and comfort him and I probably bring him food. He had needs, physical needs. Finally, Jesus died. His body died. In Luke 23, 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. He's felt the feeling of a last breath. He's felt the sting of death. He is actually, truly, fully human. Even to his death, from his birth to his death, he experienced in his body actual humanity. Jesus lived a, a real life in a real human body, but what it's important to grasp in this is that he wasn't uh, God sitting in, in a human body, driving it like some kind of robot. He didn't, it doesn't end there, and we can begin to see uh, his true humanity, that he wasn't just God in a human shell when we go into the next section, because we know that we're not, as humans, what makes us most human is not our bodies, right? That's a part of our humanity, but it's the rest of us. And so let's look next that Jesus is fully human in his heart. Again, meaning his emotions, that Jesus felt real human emotions. This is our God, our Savior, who knows us this intimately. He felt sorrow. In Matthew 26, 38, then he said to them, my 
soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Hmm. There's a few things in this, actually, that I didn't notice that I want to add. That in this moment, this is as he's in the garden preparing himself to go to the cross. And one, we see that he is, he feels sorrow. We see that he's overwhelmed. And we see that he's, he wants company. He wants to be comforted. And I don't think there's anybody in this room that has not experienced probably all three of those, sometimes all at the same time. Where we've had moments where we've felt, where we've faced hardship or difficult situations and had real sorrow through loss or whatever the situation might be, where we felt sorrow, where we felt overwhelmed, whether it's everything in our lives crashing down on us, whether it's everything around us feeling like it's coming in and suffocating us from all sides and we can't breathe. And we've all had moments where we felt like, I, man, can you just come and sit with me? Can you just come and I just don't want to be alone in this. I, can you stay with me? We've all had these moments and Jesus knows what that's like. Now, we can't compare the feeling of overwhelmed that he had as he knew he was about to take on the sins of all the world and die a horrible death on a cross. But I think we don't need to relate directly because what's overwhelming for me may be really easy for you and vice versa. The feeling of overwhelmed is something that comes from within. It's based on who we are. And so I want to encourage you that we have a Savior, we have a Lord. Our God knows what it's like to be overwhelmed. How amazing is that, that when we pray, when we come to Him, we can know that He's not just indifferent or He's not distant from it. It's not, it's not small or insignificant to Him. It matters to Him because He knows what it feels like to be overwhelmed, to have sorrow, to need the company of others. To feel alone. And in John 3.33. When Jesus saw her weeping. This is in reference to Lazarus. And the Jews who had come along with, with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then in verse 35. After he goes and asks where the body is. It says Jesus wept. This is a really powerful one for me especially because one, it, what a thing to, to emulate. What is Jesus doing here? He's empathizing with their hurts and their pains and their sufferings. As he saw their hurt, he felt their pain. I mean, it was always an interesting one especially because he raises Lazarus from the grave so he could have like had like a smirk on his face, like, you guys are crying now, but I'm about to like rock your worlds. So, but he wasn't. He didn't come in above them. He came in with them. He felt their pain. He connected to them at a heart level. And he truly felt the pain. And he was close to Lazarus as well. And so he felt this pain of loss. So he knows this. Jesus gets it. He's felt pain. He's felt 
hurt. He's felt real empathy in seeing other people hurt. Something that we as a church family can can try to hold on to as we support one another, pray for one another, that we always want to not just uh, come in and say, hey, you know, just believe, brother, just believe, sister, it's going to be okay. But really, sometimes we need to just connect with them. And maybe if we connect this with this other verse we looked at, just have moments where we know that when people feel overwhelmed, they just maybe need somebody to be there with them. They just need somebody to connect with them, to feel what they're feeling. And this is the example that Jesus sets for us here. So, one, we see his empathy directly laid out, and two, we can know that we have a Lord, we have a Savior that's felt pain in this way. Now, it's not just the bad, the negative emotions. He's also felt amazement. In Matthew eight ten. when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This one is fascinating to me. That Jesus feels amazement. Again, showing us his two true, distinct, full natures. As God, he's all-knowing. As God, he isn't really surprised by anything. But in his humanity, he here is amazed at this man's faith. But I believe that if we see Jesus as amazed, when we look at the Gospels, obviously this is painting a specific picture of Christ's ministry. But if we see that he's experienced this, I believe very strongly that he didn't just feel amazement here, but in other situations, at a sunrise. I had this this morning, actually. I woke up and uh, kind of, I opened the curtains and it was, you know, this nice gentle snow happening and I had this like wow I did not expect that did not expect to see something so beautiful and God our Lord our Savior Jesus Christ has had those moments he's had those moments where he was amazed at something amazed at the beauty of creation how cool is that that he would understand us even on that level that he would get us in that way. And lastly, with emotion, these are just some examples that I'm looking at. There are more. Uh, but our last one I want to look at is zeal. This is a famous story found in John 2, 15 through 17. Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, this goes back to uh, Psalms, zeal for for your house, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus is not sinning here, I just want to be very clear. And he he wasn't attacking the people. He had a zeal. For the house of the Lord. He drove them out because they had been uh, polluting the, the purity and the purpose of the temple where people could come and connect to God and they were using it as a way to get some quick money on the people who were traveling and needed to make their sacrifices. And he was just disgusted by this. And it's not an anger as I think we would connect with anger 
Typically when we think of anger, it's how something else or someone else has affected us. This person makes me angry. This situation makes me mad. But Jesus, it wasn't about Jesus. It wasn't about how it affected him. It was about what they were doing to the, to the Lord's house. And he had a zeal for God's house. Now, man, that we would have such passion. What an example. That we would have such passion for God, for his truth, for his son, as Jesus demonstrates here for, the God, for God's house. That we would be so passionate to see his truth prevail over all other things. But the point that I'll make most is that Jesus understands what it's like to have great passion, to have a fierce passion. And I think that God puts holy, righteous passions in us, whatever it might be, whatever it might be. If you, I think we all have a specific ministry, a calling on our lives, and uh, I've heard it described as, as the thing that makes you angry about the world that you see needs to change, whether it's, uh, whether it's, the, the problem of, of, of prostitution or the problem of, of children that are mistreated or whatever it might be, finding these things and exposing yourself to them because that passion, that fierceness shouldn't be pushed away or, or uh, pushed down but ignited that we would have a zeal for God and for His truth and for His house. And so I would encourage you if you do have a passion Pursue it. Push into it. We have, I think we all, I think everybody has a passion specifically that they're called to pursue. So as we see with Christ, let's have that passion in our lives. So Jesus was and is filled with real emotions. And when we feel sorrow or amazement or empathy or zeal or passion, we can talk to our Savior. We can talk to our Lord about these things, knowing that He's not distant. He's not like only knows, knows it from uh, one perspective, from God perspective. He knows it from experience. He's experienced these things. And John Calvin says, I think puts it really well, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Now the next one we'll look at takes us a little bit deeper that Jesus is fully human in his mind. We see that Jesus grew not only his body but also that as we looked earlier that he grew in wisdom. So in his youth he grew in wisdom. He was uh, had to learn things. And if we look at the example of when he was 12 and he was in the temple I don't know if you guys know it. He was uh, uh, surprising and amazing, all of the, the spiritual leaders and, and teachers at the time. And the reason that he was able to grow in wisdom so quickly is because he wasn't weighed down by sin as we are. He was free from that. But he still had to learn things. He still had to grow in knowledge and in wisdom in his humanity. And where it gets more interesting 
is if we look at Mark 13, 32, it says, but about, this is talking about the day that Jesus will come back in the second coming. It says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. Now, this is a really interesting verse to wrap our brains around because without getting into all of the aspect of the Trinity, that would have been a great foundation for this message. God and the Son are equal. There's no separation between the two of them. And so we see a distinction between his two natures. As in his human in his humanity, Jesus did not know the hour he would come back. But that doesn't mean to diminish that in his divinity, he did know. And at first, this seems really kind of uh, paradoxical again, but I believe this paints a picture and, and presents a proof of Jesus' full humanity and also his individuality, that he is one of a kind. There is only one Jesus Christ. Only one could truly save us, and it had to be him. He is truly God, and he is truly man. And whatever is true of one of his natures, going back to what we looked at as our, our foundation before we dove into all this, whatever is true of one of the natures of Christ is true of the one individual person of Jesus Christ. This is important for us to grasp, that in addition to being fully divine, Jesus is fully human. But he is one person, having an infinite divine mind as well as a finite human mind. This is what makes him the connector between us and God, which we'll kind of conclude with. So as hard as this is for us to wrap our brains around, Jesus is the only one who is like this. The only one who is, has two fully distinct natures. So, of course, it's hard for us to grasp because there's nothing to compare to. There's nothing that we can look at and say, oh, it's like this. He is our one and only Savior, the only one who can truly save us from our sin, but not just our sin, but he's redeemed us in all aspects of our lives. So lastly, Jesus is fully human in his will. And this is where it really takes another step into the depths. And there are two texts that I'm going to read and uh, move through quickly somehow. John 6:38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. It's an interesting, we see again this distinction. And Matthew 26, 39. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, these can be a little bit confounding when we first try to wrap our brains and grasp the depth of what's happening here. But they show us how Jesus has Again, both an infinite and a finite, uh, an infinite and divine will, uh, because he is fully God, and he is one with the Father, and he has a finite human will. 
that is authentically human and distinct from his divine will. But what's interesting here is he also sets for us an example because he is in perfect submission and in sync with the divine will of God the Father. He says, I don't do anything except what the will of, of what the Father tells me. Connecting his human will and the divine will. And what's, what's awesome about this is one, it again bridges the gap. It makes it so he can bridge the gap between us and God as fully human and fully God. And also it sets for us an example of how we can live in submission and obedience to the will of God. So, and just to emphasize again that these two distinct natures are not divided, 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So he is the one and the only, the perfect mediator between us and God both fully man and fully God. There would be no other way for us to come to the Father, no other way for us to truly be saved, to be able to live in freedom that we have through Christ, to be the righteousness of God in Christ, if he wasn't this, if he wasn't fully God and fully man, making the gap between us in our flesh and him. God. So in closing, there are three points that I kind of want to, that we've looked at here and there throughout the, <laughs> throughout the, uh, the text that we went through and the, the message that we went through so far that I want to kind of re-emphasize. So number one, why is Jesus' humanity important? Because of his ability to have empathy toward us. Again, to not just have an idea of what it's like to be human, to not just have heard about what it's like to be human, but to have lived it and experienced it from birth to death. He knows what it's like. He knows when we hurt, when we have struggles, he's felt those things. He can truly empathize with our situations. He's wept he grew, he lived, he died, he laughed. He lived a human life. Ultimately, he rose again and now still lives. But in his empathy towards us, he also sets an example for us. But beyond an example, he becomes the perfect mediator. So Hebrews four fifteen through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, in every time of need, in all types of times of need, because he doesn't just save us from our sins. He doesn't just give us freedom from the weight of sin in, this, in, the, in the realm of our salvation, meaning that we, when we die, we go and we are with Christ for eternity. It's more than that. Because he lived and did not sin, we have freedom in all areas of our lives, and we can freely come to him in, with confidence. I love that. With confidence, we can go into the throne room for mercy in the face of all adversities that we may uh, encounter in our lives. And this is because Jesus is Jesus. Because he is, again, fully God and fully man. He is the perfect connector. Number two, he has fully redeemed. Jesus has fully redeemed. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but when... The set time had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. We don't have to wait until death to receive the full benefits of what Christ did. What he did wasn't just on the cross. It was all that he lived. He redeemed every aspect of life from birth to our adolescence, growing up, and ultimately to death. And he defeated death, and he rose again. And this is what we cling to most in our salvation, that we have new life in Christ because Christ is no longer dead but alive. But it's not just that. He went before us. He came in under the law and redeemed all of us our lives, that we might receive adoption. That starts today. That starts the moment that we call him Lord. We are adopted into the family of God, and we can call him Father, and he calls us son and daughter. And that is today. And this is why we can seek to live a life that is righteous before God today. We will fail because we do live in a fallen world. But we have a new heart. God's law is written on our hearts. And because of this redemption, because of this adoption to sonship that we have in Christ, we don't have to just take the salvation and hold on to it and so we have a pass to get into heaven. All right, check. We can start living a righteous life today. We can start seeking this out today. And that is point number three. That Jesus is the new standard of humanity. I think when we look around and we think of the standard of humanity, we tend to want to make some kind of average about how we all are, and then maybe we can draw some kind of line of this is the normal for humanity. And Christ is above it. Christ is above the normal. But I would encourage us to shift that down. The reality is, Jesus is the standard. He set the standard of what a life lived can look like. He is the one to emulate. 
He lived a perfect, righteous life. And we are below the normal. We are below what is supposed to be the standard for humanity because of sin and its corrupting power to influence us and to drag us down and to give us, it, when we think about our minds, sin gives us biases. When, it, when we think about our will, it's easily corrupted. The heart is deceitful above all things. But we have redemption in Christ and through that we can seek to be at that standard that he has set in Luke 9:23 this is what I'll leave you guys with then he said to them this is Jesus talking said to them all whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me this is something that was really laid on my heart again this week as I looked at my life and the things that I struggle with, the things I mess up on. And I was just really hit hard of the reminder that there's no magic spell. There's no, uh, you, know, s- you know, special prayer that we can pray where we never struggle again, not in this life. It's a daily walk. We daily take up our cross. We daily deny ourselves the corrupted will, the sinful parts of who we are. And uh, Galatians, Paul talks about it as a, as a fight between what I want to do, I, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I, I find myself doing. This is the Christian walk. It's a fight. But we have a Redeemer, a Redeemer that lives today. I want to invite the band to come back up. And... I just want to leave you guys with that encouragement. You have a Savior that knows you. There's nothing you can experience that He doesn't relate to, empathize with. And with that in mind, go to Him. This is why we can pray about anything. We don't just pray about our sins in our lives. We pray about our struggles when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel sorrow. We praise Him when we get amazed by something. We can talk to Him about every aspect of our lives because He knows and has experienced it. And He's still alive today, and in Him we have true redemption in all areas of our lives. And it's Christmas, so what better time to be reminded of this truth, of the incarnation, the humanity of Jesus Christ, and how when we understand this, we have a deeper and more profound and more intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior as he really truly is. So let's worship him with one last song now.